Hi, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we strive to live life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast to help you plug in at Quest both in person and online. Now, let's dive into this week's teaching. So as we start today's message, I want to give some credit. Um, I'm borrowing a lot of the content and flow of the message from a guy named Paul Tripp, and so I want to give him credit. Uh, he preached a message that's actually a, it's a message that this message is on my life verse, and he preached a message on it that was so refreshing to me. I wanted you to walk away today with the same truth that I got from it. It's a truth that gets at, I think, um, the thing that is probably the biggest energy robber in life that makes us even need to be refreshed and find new strength. It's, 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 I could describe it as a plague. It's a plague that robs you of joy. It's, it's, it robs you of the rest that Jesus died to give you and the joy that he died to give you. It's an issue that reduces you and me to timidity, to doubt, to worry. It's, it becomes a major driver of addictive behavior and problems of all kind for all of us. It's a contagious disease that infects all of humanity. It doesn't matter how long you've been following Christ or how mature you are in your faith. It's something we constantly all fight and we all watch out for no matter how long we've been a Christian. It's a sickness that is, frankly, frequently not detected. We, some to, we actually live life with this delusion that we're healthy and everything is okay. All the while, this sickness and disease is dampening us and destroying us and taking energy and, ta- and taking away our peace. What is it? I love the way Paul Tripp says it. He says it's identity amnesia. We forget who we are. And in forgetting who we are, we frantically look for, ide- for our identity in thousands of places where it will never be found. Each and every day, we instinctively, we naturally look for identity in so many places without knowing we're even doing it. And because we so often look in the wrong places because we don't know who we are, it leaves us stressed, it leaves us pressured, it leaves us with headaches, it leaves us burdened and without sleep. And we're so used to carrying that burden that, that, that we don't even know we're carrying it around anymore. It's just, just, that's just the way life is. But it's not something that we're supposed to settle for in the way life is. I had a conversation like we usually do with our family over the holidays. Uh, Wendy's real good about bringing up questions on a regular basis uh, at the end of the year, saying, where do, you, where do you feel like you've grown the most in God this last year? And our family discusses that. And I, I made the comment the, to, to my family, the older, the older I get, the more deeply I realize how selfishness and sin affects me, more than I ever imagined even though I see God helping me grow to sin less obviously in general, the more I know God, the more I know who I am, the more I see the tentacles of sin, the lack of trust, the forgetting God loves me, the forgetting that God is more powerful than anything around me or anyone around me, the more I see the selfish control and the self-centered protectiveness that drives our stress and our anxiety and our relational difficulty. It's really forgetting who I truly am. It goes so deep and so very wide in me. And so does God's love and forgiveness go equally or even wider than that. 
See, I think that anger and frustration in our lives so often results in defensive self-protection. It's, it's so often driven by the need to bolster and protect our, and defend our identity. It's, and it's because we suffer from our identity amnesia. We don't know who we are, so we feel a need to defend and protect. And you're, see, you're, you're constantly in a conversation in life, aren't you, with yourself. And no one is more influential in your life than you are because no one talks to you more than you talk to yourself. You are always saying something about you, right, to yourself. You're always assigning to yourself some potential value, some an, an identity to you. You say things like, I am this and therefore I can and I can be or I can do this. And sometimes you say, I am this and therefore I can't be and can't do that. You're talking to yourself like that all the time. It's just part of you. And we can often live largely unaware of what exactly we're even saying to ourselves, but nonetheless, we are still talking to ourselves, assigning an identity to ourselves, and within that identity, assigning a value to who you are all of the time. And what we say drives our actions. It drives our feelings. And it drives our energy output, and it's a major cause of tiredness in life. See, the identity you are telling yourself will uh, determine how you deal with everything in life. You never escape the identity you assign to yourself. It's always there. Even in the most mundane moments of life, it is always there. What Or who gives you the information that defines who you are? And how does that identity dictate who you are in everyday life? It affects everything. So as we begin this series on Refresh, we felt like we had to use this as the foundational message because it affects every aspect of every moment of our life. We're going to deal in a moment with Psalm 27, uh, which talks about this place where sturdy, lasting identity can be found. And interestingly enough, this psalm is a psalm of trouble. That in and of itself should actually be thought-provoking for us. Because isn't it true that in the moments of trouble is where your sense of true identity gets most exposed? I mean, what you're looking to to give you inner peace and meaning will always be exposed in trouble. Uh, Paul Tripp says it this way. He says, what makes trouble so troublesome is that it exposes who we are. It rocks the place I'm looking to for security, rest, purpose, and meaning. For some, for example... Sickness and trouble turns us into depressed, angry people. We say it this way, I'm a bad patient. How many of you have said that, right? And even as we mourn the passing of Rob Hall, there's something about his life that was so inspiring to us. Rob faced tremendous pain, tremendous trouble, and tremendous difficulty all throughout throughout his life. He was supposed to die of leukemia 25 years ago. He had multiple brushes with death in the last 25 years. He faced addiction in his family and, and family trouble and divorce and raising and caring for severely disabled, terminally ill children. And yet, he was one of the more joyful people we knew around here. Because he was more sure of his identity than many of us are. 
Trouble for him exposed beauty instead of ashes. So when historians and theologians look at this context of this passage that we're going to look at in Psalm 27, they believe that David wrote it. There's kind of two streams of thought that have been around for hundreds and hundreds of years, that David wrote it in one of two settings. One of those, they believe he may have written it early in his life when he was hiding from King Saul. So if you recall the story, David was prophesied to be the next and anointed to be the next king one day. But in the meantime, he was to prove his faithfulness and character by serving the current king, Saul. Uh, Saul was a king who clearly didn't understand his identity in God and allowed his insecurity to rule his life, which was actually his downfall in life. So King Saul became insanely jealous of David, forcing him to flee and pursuing him, hiding while David was hiding in the wilderness. Saul was trying to pursue him to kill him. Take, just think for a minute. Can you imagine what that would feel like to be David? To be hunted and hated by one who you had loyally and faithfully served and loved so well. There's another tradition that believes that it may have been written actually later in David's life when he was fleeing from his son Absalom. David's already been king and Absalom is leading a rebellion against him late in his life. And imagine again the feeling of pain if that was when he wrote this. As your son forces you to flee the palace... And seeking, he's seeking your death and he gets into the palace and he publicly sleeps with and defiles your wives and your concubines doing every obscene manipulative thing he can do to trash your name and your reputation. And yet you love your son so deeply that when Absalom is killed, David, instead of celebrating as a victor, crumbles with the grief of a father. See, in the end, it doesn't really matter which of these two situations this was written in. We know that David experienced great trouble in his life, and that is the place from which he's writing this psalm. And he starts it in verse 1 by saying this, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? See, this psalm was written in one of two dark situations, neither of which any of us would ever want to be in in our own lives. And yet David doesn't begin with trouble. He begins with theology. He begins with God. See, David, in this desperate situation, needing to be refreshed, needing to find hope, energy, focus, needing to find purpose, needing to get away out of this, turns first to God, to truths that tell him who he is in a world that is bigger than he is, in a world that he can't control, in a time when he doesn't know what tomorrow will bring. The Lord is light. The Lord is salvation. The Lord is stronghold. And as we read the verses later, we'll discover that it also says the Lord is beauty and the Lord is home and the Lord is safety. Think about what those metaphors mean for a moment and what they point to. Light points to that which is pure and true and right and just. When it feels like there's no justice for me, there is one who exists who is the ultimate of what is true, of what is just, of what is faithful, of what is loving, of of what is pure. The Lord is salvation. Think about that. 
in the widest sense of the meaning of salvation as, as one who delivers me from evil both inside of me and evil outside of me. Salvation from evil inside of me that I cannot escape. My own sin, my own thoughts, my own feelings. I can run from circumstances, but I can't run from myself. I can't run from my own fear or my own bitterness or my own thoughts, right? And there's salvation for that for you. And there's salvation from evil outside of me. Only God can protect me from outside harm. Give me a way through it or around it, whichever the case may be. And ultimately, one day, we'll all be invited to one funeral we want to attend, the funeral of sin and death, where Jesus causes sin and death to die and salvation to be completely experienced in every way in our lives and in our creation. And the picture of the Lord is stronghold. It's a picture of a fortified city, a a place of retreat and a place of safety. There is one who handles our defense and provides safety for us. The Lord is light. The Lord is salvation. The Lord is stronghold. And oftentimes that's where we land in reading the Scripture and the way we approach it. But within that, when we land that way, we land in one of the greatest dangerous places of how we approach Scripture and our faith if we leave it at that a theology being about God and faith being about admiring those characteristics of God, if we land only there, we land in a dangerous, incomplete theology and faith. See, David doesn't stay there. He doesn't say the Lord is light, the Lord is salvation, the Lord is stronghold. Did you get it? There's something missing. Did you catch what's missing? David says the Lord is my light. The Lord is my salvation. The Lord is my stronghold. Just two little critical letters that make all the difference in the world. You and I, we don't need more ideas rattling around in our brain. We already have more truth about life and God than we can handle. Theology, truth about God, doesn't just define God. It redefines who you are and who I am. It establishes our identity. See, the Lord is my light. This grace that he gives by forgiving me, by giving me of his spirit, by giving me his word as a light to my path that leads me to live in and increasingly realize the righteousness he gives me as a gift up front in my relationship with him. This is all mine now. It defines who I really am now, even if I don't yet fully live up to all of it. In fact, I can never do enough to deserve it. I can never be good enough. I can never be purely free of selfishness and idolatry as I wish I was. Yet the Lord is my salvation. He's my salvation This grace, Jesus giving us the Holy Spirit, has burst into my life. You see, you don't hope in salvation. You hope in a person who took names to the cross to forgive Joe and Patrick and Derek and Mandy and Tiana and all of us. Your name is one of them. You don't find life or forgiveness in an abstract concept. 
but in a personal God who sacrificed himself to save you. See, what makes you strong and secure in life is not in your, it's not in your self-confidence and your self-esteem, but in your God-confidence and your God-esteem is where your identity is found. He sacrificed for you to give you rest from all the energy-sapping burdens of you trying to save yourself. Rest from the need to prove that you are lovable and worthy in a way that causes you so much stress and conflict, sapping you of strength and energy. He sacrificed to forgive you, to guarantee that one day you would be perfect and He would make you that way, that you would be all the good He created you to be so that you never have to carry the burden of other people's goals and other people's expectations for you in order to feel good about yourself and your life. The Lord is my salvation, my stronghold, my refuge. That's your identity. And it's magnificent It's unchangeable. It's eternal. It's something eternal that's happened to you because God's grace has connected you very personally to the one who is salvation, light, and stronghold. Grace has changed me and established my identity unshakable before God, my creator, the lover of my soul. See, when we remember our identity like that, we can say, not with any kind of defensive arrogance, but with a humble, peaceful grace, I don't need you to like me. I don't need to notch all those successes and all those achievements in order to feel meaningful and joyful about my life. And I don't need to be around important people to feel important. Think for a minute about where we often go to look for our identity. We look for identity in our work, right? But your success in work is never an endorsement of your worth or your comparison to others. It is simply a revelation of the joy of the talents and gifts God has given you. We often look for identity in our Christian service or our ministry, our volunteering, the the benevolent things we do in life, uh, leading groups or teaching or, or, or giving things, right? But your success in ministry is never an endorsement of your character or your goodness, Rather, it's simply a revelation of God's goodness and God's character and God's grace. I mean, think about it. If God can make a donkey speak like he did in Numbers 22, then if you speak the words of God and great change happens, that means you're as good as an ass. Think about it. Okay? We look for identity oftentimes in relationship too, don't we? Now, that's a sure bet for a peaceful life, isn't it? Because you're never going to fight. I mean, come on. We tend to think things like, all I want is a husband or a wife or a family who will make me happy. And What are you, nuts? Right? I don't do a whole lot of counseling anymore. I used to do a lot more with young marrieds and pre-marrieds. But we throw mountains of weight on top of those we claim to love. And it only crushes the other person with unattainable expectations. And it's not just in marriage. It can be expectations towards a friend or a parent or a, or a, or a child or a boss that we have. And, and we actually live life thinking that this person can make our life happy and meaningful. Who do you think they are? Do you think they're like the fourth person of the Trinity or something? God? 
And yet it's so easy, I find, for myself to continue to expect Wendy and my kids to define my identity and make me happy. I was sitting in the cafe this last week working, and I accidentally uh, had my phone out, and I set it down over, and I, ac- what I, ac- I accidentally activated Siri. How many of you have ever done that? You activate Siri accidentally, and, and then you don't talk, you don't say anything, so Siri talks back to you, right? Siri says to me, Emperor, I didn't get that. What do you want me to do? <laughs> well... Over the holidays, my kids and I were joking and laughing, and they just, they they challenged me to change my Siri to instead of telling me calling me Ross to call me Emperor, and I'd forgotten that I'd done that. It actually really shocked me, and I just uh, Greg was out there in the cafe too at the time, and I just bust out laughing when I got called Emperor by my phone. We so often want the people around us to make us feel like an emperor, though, isn't it true? to give us our ultimate sense of worth, to provide all we want in happiness and in every other way, and and I just can't do it. It's not possible. And yet we continue to look for our identity in those things. And as a result, we make tremendously big deals out of things that are really kind of small. So, you know, like maybe you go home and you notice there's crumbs on the counter and all of a sudden you start thinking, why would they crumb me so disrespectfully? My dad crumbed me and my mom, and, and, and he didn't really love us. He just treated us like slaves to pick up the trash, and he never let us do anything important like painting or fixing the car because he didn't think we were worthy of doing that. We weren't good enough to do that. So uh, now all of a sudden my family is crumbing me, and, 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 and why would they crumb me and treat me so badly, right? And we get angry and upset and feel bad about life or... Or in your relationships, how many of you have somebody in your relationships, or maybe this is you, and you have to be the history police, right? So you never let your family or a friend uh, tell a story without letting them know that you have better recall of how that happened than they did, and you have to correct everything, right? You get your sense of identity from knowing better and remembering better, and it's a threat to you if you don't. So it causes tensions, and it causes relational conflict, right? See, you're not just having relational problems when that goes on. Your problem is you've forgotten who you are. Your identity is in the wrong place. That sense of my doesn't live in your life the way it needs to. My light, my salvation, my stronghold is God. And grace is not personal to you because you're struggling to give the grace. See, your identity is still found in being right. Or maybe you find your, be- your identity and your possessions, how beautiful your home is. And if, if that's right, then you're going to live life really uptight and you're going to put financial pressure in your life that doesn't need to be there. Because you, you, you're going to walk through your, and you're going to notice a dent in that pillow from 50 yards away and, and that pillow is, oh, how could that pillow look so bad? I've got to hurry up and go replace that. Or, or, or you, you see a mismatching color or a style that's out of whack and it compels you to go buy something you don't need just because you can't feel good about yourself until your home feels good and looks fashionable and looks like the model homes that you see in the catalogs. And your source of identity drives you to conflict and to spend money you don't really have. Or maybe you're the person who follows people into the room and tries to force them to pick everything up or picks up everything after them because, God forbid, your room actually looked like somebody lived there, right? That never comes up, does it? Why? Why do we make such big things 
out of little things. See, we think we have a slob problem, but we don't have a slob problem. We have an identity problem. You're an identity amnesiac. You look at the surrounding possessions and you look to them to give you peace that only a Savior can give. Isn't that true? I mean, come on. These stories, we can relate to that. We can own that. We all do some insane things like this on a regular basis, don't we? Or you try to find your identity and achievements. So you tweet or you Facebook post something like, it was pouring down rain this morning, but I still did my nine-mile run. (laughs) Kind of weird, self-validating things that we need to put in print, right? How many times do you do something for someone that they didn't know about and you feel compelled? You can't restrain yourself from letting them know you did what you did for them. Like, you know, I, I took care of your mail. <laughs> right? Psalm 27, 1 tells us the only place identity will ever be found is when we get the Lord is my in our life. We can't deal with that light and salvation and stronghold things and abstraction. It's really easy for us to approach Sunday school or our small group discussions. We just want to be informational. But we can't be just informational. It has to become something very personal. We have to make it part of our lives. Theology is always very personal. It's my light, my salvation, my stronghold. It isn't complete when it's just about God. It's only complete when it's about God and us. It's always about relationship. The mission is always about relationship. A Savior has come to me, and I'm okay. In fact, I'm more than okay. David goes on and says, When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war breaks out against me, even then I will be confident. And then what we're going to read in a minute, he goes on from there and says, And here's the one thing I want you to do wants you to get. And we're going to talk about that in a moment, but, but think about this for a minute before we get there. If you actually had an army camping against you, what would be the one thing that you would be asking God? Probably, God, do you have a big gun? Can you give me a bigger gun than they have? Right? That, that, that might be a question you'd ask. Uh, you might say, well, God, hey, you created heat. Can you just inter- incinerate them? Right? That might be something I could ask if I had an army camping against me. Or I might ask, God, um, Hawaii sounds really good right now. Can you just plot me over there on a beach somewhere? Right? One of the things I love about Scripture is it's just so honest with reality. There are stories in the Bible that are just so base, so vulgar almost, that, that we wouldn't buy them in the, if they were in a bookstore, Right? But the Bible says you never have to play games with reality. You never have to deny reality in order to be a person full of faith. You can always look at this, and even in the darkness of a fallen world, you can still live in faith. You can still be okay. You can still live in that stronghold, in that place of light, in that place of salvation, even in the darkest place 
on earth. And then he goes on and describes this one thing and gives us some tips on how we can apply this to our lives and find some refreshing. He says, one thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. This text is all about how we focus on engaging the very presence of God. It's about prayer. It's about meditation. It's about focus as we walk through life. It's about where our heart's longing drives us. It's about relationship. And David is demonstrating in this several kind of how to do this lessons. And the first critical step that he's talking about in this passage we've read to get to refreshment in our lives is to learn to be self-aware. It starts there. It starts about getting this, about self-aware of where we're getting our sense of identity, to know the fears, to know the statements we're telling ourselves, to acknowledge the fact that we have an army camped against us and, and, and what that is making us feel and think in this and identify those things and take them to God. And not only, we not only take those messages we get to God, but then we turn to God and we learn to do the my Lord stuff. The one thing I ask and seek is to be in that place where my Lord invades all of my thoughts, all of my actions, all of my feelings, all of my life. And to do that, David says we need to learn to meditate. It's all about our meditation. Now, often when we think about meditation, we go to this place of guilt because we think of meditation only as setting aside alone time to pray and meditate with God, this solitary experience. And, and certainly that can be an important part of what we do. But meditation in this context is so much broader than that. I mean, think about it. As the armies are camped against David, David's not saying to his generals, hey guys, excuse me while I jump on a horse and go back to the temple so I can have some alone time while I'm with God and, uh, you know, I'll see you in a few, right? David's not doing that. Meditation here is more of an idea of gazing. It's much more about the thought and heart focus that we have all throughout the day, all of the time going on within us. See, once we identify that maybe it's anger that we're struggling with in relation to our spouse or colleague because we don't feel valued by them, we acknowledge that to God and then you flip intentionally to begin to think about who God is to you and what God says about you and you gaze upon your circumstances, not not primarily upon your circumstances, but upon the beauty of God as you face that. And what that can look like is it can look like, you know, recalling a scripture verse to your mind in your head while you're in the middle of a conversation. Or it can, it could be going through the day and, and choosing to sing certain worship songs that help you remember who you are and who God is to you. Or, or it could even be remembering some of your history, remembering some situations in the past where, that are similar, where God came through and, and trying to bring into your present circumstance how it felt and when God came through and transferring that experience to your present. It's almost like you grab those thoughts in the middle of a conversation that are triggering your bad idea. And and while you, even while you're continuing the conversation with someone, you're intentionally saying, God, be my light. Help me see this clearly. God, be my salvation. Come and help me not be my worst self, but be who you want me to be. God, would you be my stronghold right in the middle of this conflicted conversation I'm having with my spouse or my boss or my friend? Right? 
And then David goes on and gives us another lesson. He said, because David's psalms like this one aren't, aren't just private journals of David. They are his public confessions. At least they were public to the priests and the closest people to him who he went to worship with at the temple. And see, that gives us another lesson that I hope, I hope for all of us who call Quest home and everyone who come to call Quest home in 2017, that we will take leaps and bounds together, moving ahead in our engagement of honest conversation and prayer with each other. It's one of the reasons I continue to strongly encourage us to turn to our neighbors or to come down front after church for prayer every Sunday. And and I encourage you to pray every time you get together as a small group. And and don't just take lists and pray pray later. And and don't take a list and just have a couple people who are the more spiritual ones pray the pastoral-type prayers over everything on the list. But, But take time to pray personally, to break down into groups of two and three. And all of you pray for each other, learning to listen to God, learning to see God showing up in that moment. See, identity amnesia is far more powerful when we face life alone without the encouragement of others, without the giving of opportunity for the Holy Spirit through others to work on our behalf through prayer and spending time together with other people. We need each other to help us pursue the one thing in life, to strongly live in our identity that we have because of who God is to us so that it becomes our, me, my, our experience, personal experience of living in Jesus. See, we want, we want to affirm each other. And that's often the way we approach uh, identity formation. We often want to affirm each other for their talents and gifts, and we need to affirm each other for those talents and gifts. God has made each and every person tremendously beautiful and wonderful, and we should comment on that all the time. But we don't want to make our identity built on those affirmations. When we affirm people, we want those affirmations to lead people to God and them knowing Him as my light, as my salvation, my stronghold, my beauty, my home, my safety. Because if it's just up to us, we tell somebody they're good, but everybody messes up. We know when somebody tells us good, we're not good all the time. We know, we know we're going to mess up. If our identity is built on people's affirmations, of us, we will just find ourselves increasingly pressured to perform. So how do we lead our kids? How do we lead our friends to God, not just our affirmations? So let's summarize some homework that we can have that David, I think, demonstrates for us that we can walk away with this week and and do in a way that allows us each to receive some refreshing from God. Again, the first one is become more self-aware. If you get a message, if you find out my boss didn't give me the promotion and and that bothers you or my friend didn't call me back and there's something, tension tension going on there that's making you go wild and going, this is just not right, or or a family member who said something demeaning of you, what are you telling yourself? What am I telling myself about me that's driving my feeling in that moment and my actions in that moment? Sometimes it may be really hard to get to our thinking and we may not know what we're telling ourselves. Just take some time in those moments where you can't figure that out just to sense your emotions. You you may realize that 
pit in your stomach or that tension headache or the tension in your shoulders is really eventually, it may, you may just realize it's anger or anxiousness. And, and then when you start to identify that, you can start to ask yourself the question, what message is driving those feelings for me? And then flip from that and spend time gazing upon God, remembering his grace, his salvation, his strength, his promises to you, the truth of who God says you are. What does God say about you in regard to his plans for your work, for your friends, for your family? I mean, even if you sin against somebody, even if you are wrong in a situation, what does God say about his grace towards you? And how he feels about you even in that moment. Be self-aware and then gaze and meditate and direct your focus to God. And I want you to take it a step further this week. Ask a friend, spouse, small group member to pray with you. Take those self-awareness things and ask people to pray with you so that you can be strengthened by that relationship as well. And then the last step is simply act. When you do those three things, the next step is you just simply get up and act according to what God has said, my Lord has said. Whether you feel like it or not, act and speak about those areas you become aware of, aware of according to your meditation of who God is, not according to the dark messages that you're telling yourself. For example, if you're anxious, then think, what would a non-anxious person who really was in that place where they were totally absorbed by God being my stronghold, what would they do next? And then just do your best. It may be a baby step. It may be standing up and falling down. You may not even get a full step out of that. But do some sort of action the best that you can, as far as you can, no matter how imperfect it is, that demonstrates I'm going to take a step to act in my stronghold. I don't feel like it, but I'm going to take a step. And that may not be much. See, that's what faith is. Acting in accordance with God's view of us and our life, even when we don't feel like it. And meditation is not just something that happens inside our head. Meditation is also action in our life. You act not based on your own achievements or your own success, but you act on God's grace his salvation, his promise of safety, his promise of strength. Can I just pray for you as we turn to worship? Lord, I pray that your spirit would come to each of us because we all know this is a huge battle for every one of us. It's an area where Satan comes in and accuses and our own thoughts and other people's thoughts and just accuse. And it's so easy for us to become so driven to find our identity and affirmation from other people or from our own accomplishments. Lord, I pray that you would help us receive who you are to us, that we would learn to turn away from those things for identity and learn to turn to you, the God who is our salvation, the God who is our strength, the God who redeems all of our messes, the God who in the midst of our messes promises a good future for us, promises good things for us to be engaged with and promises to one day set everything right for us and make us who we really want to be. Lord, help us receive your presence. Help us walk in that strength. 
Help us put away the anxiety and the stress and the pressure of all the rest of the performance that we so often get caught in and learn to walk free of that in the energy and the strength that you have for us. Come, Holy Spirit, even right now as we continue to worship and begin to touch our hearts where we need to be touched in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you are loving Quest podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information about Quest, who we are and what we do, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at GoToQuest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org.